Escape Pod 336. March 15, 2012. The Speed of Time, by Jay Lake. Hello and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Mer Lafferty. This week's story is The Speed of Time by Jay Lake. Jay lives in Portland, Oregon, where he works on numerous writing and editing projects. His 2012 books are Kalampura from Tor Books and Love in the Time of Metal and Flesh from Prime Books. His short fiction appears regularly in literary and genre markets worldwide. Jay is a past winner of the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer and a multiple nominee for the Hugo and World Fantasy Awards. Jay can be reached at his blog at j that's the letter j lake.com. This story was first published on tor.com and is read for us by Josh Roseman. So be very quiet and listen to the deep dark because it's story time. The Speed of Time by Jay Lake. Light goes by at the speed of time, Marlis once told me. That was a joke, of course. Light can be slowed to a standstill in a photon trap, travel on going nowhere at all forever in the bluing distance of an event horizon, or blaze through hard vacuum as fast as information itself moves through the universe. Time is relentless, the tide which measures the perturbations of the cosmos. The 160.2 gigahertz hum of creation counts the measure of our lives as surely as any heartbeat. There is no T in E equals MC squared. I'd argued with her then, missing her point, back when understanding her might have mattered. Now, well, nothing much at all mattered. Time has caught up with us all. Let me tell you a story about Samira Glasshouse. She'd been an ordinary woman, living an ordinary life. Habitat chemistry tech, certifications from several middle-tier authorities, bouncing from contract to contract in trans-belt space. 10,000 women, men, and inters just like her out there during the last boom. We didn't call it that then. No one knew the expansion curve the solar economy had been riding was the last of anything. The last boom didn't really have a name when it was underway, except maybe to the economists. Samira had been pair-bonded to a Jewish kid from Zion Luna and kept the surname long after she'd dropped Roz from her life. For one thing, Glasshouse scandalized her Lebanese grandmother, which was a reward in itself. She was working a double ticket on the Enceladus Project Master Depot in low orbit around that particular ice ball. That meant pulling shift on shift week after week, but Samira got an expanded housing allocation and a fatter pay packet for her trouble. The EP got to schlep one less body to push green inside their habitat scrubbers. Everybody won. Her spare time was spent wiring together big ears to listen for the chatter that flooded bandwidth all over the solar system. Human beings are, were, noisy. Launch control wayfinding, birthday greetings, telemetry, banking queries, loneliness, porn. It was all out there. 
multiplied, and ramified beyond comprehension by the combination of light-speed lag, language barriers, and sheer overwhelming complexity. Some folks back then claimed there were emergent structures in the bandwidth, properties of the sum of all that chatter which could not be accounted for by analysis of the components. This sort of thinking had been going around since the dawn of information theory. Call it information fantasy. The same hard-wired pareidolia that made human beings see the hand of God in the empirical universe also made us hear him in the electronic shrieking of our tribe. Samira never really believed any of it, but she'd heard some very weird things listening in. In space, it was always midnight, and ghosts never stopped playing in the bandwidth. When she'd picked up a crying child on a leaky sideband squirt out of a nominally empty vector, she'd just kept hopping frequencies. When she'd tuned on the irregular regularity of a coded data feed that seemed to originate from deep within Saturn's atmosphere, she'd just kept hopping frequencies. But one day, God had called Samira by name. Her voice crackled out of the rising fountain of energy from an extragalactic gamma-ray burst, whispering the three syllables over and over and over in a voice which resonated down inside the soft tissues of Samira's body, made her joints ache, jellied the very resolve of the soul that she had not known she possessed until that exact moment. Samira Glasshouse shut down her big ears, wiped the logic blocks, dumped the memory, then made her way down to the Master Depot's tiny sacramentarium. Most people who worked out in the deep dark were very mystical, but not the least bit religious. The sort of spiritual uncertainty that required revelation for comfort didn't mix well with the brain-numbing distances and profound realities of life in hard vacuum. Nonetheless, by something between convention and force of habit, any decent-sized installation found space for a sacramentarium. A few hardy missionaries worked their trades on the EP just like everyone else, then spent their off-shifts talking about Allah, or Hubbard, or Jesus, or the Ninefold Path. It was as good a way as any to pass the time. Terrified that she'd gotten hold of some true sliver of the divine, or worse, that the divine had gotten hold of some true sliver of her, Samira sought to pray in the manner of her childhood. She was pretty sure the sacramentarium had a mechascope to point toward the center of the world and mark the times for the five daily prayers. She ached to abase herself before the god of her childhood, safely distant, largely abstract, living mostly in books and the minds of the adults around her. A god who spoke from the radio was far too close. Slipping through the sacramentarium's hatch amid the storage spaces of Corridor Orange F2, Samira bumped into a man she'd never seen before. He was dark-skinned in that strangely American way and wore a long linen thob with lacing embroidered around the neck. He also wore the small round cap of an alhaji. In one hand, he carried a leather-bound book, actual paper with gilt edges, worn through long handling. A Koran, she realized, a real one, like her grandmother's. The man said something in a language she did not understand, 
then added, My pardons, in the broken-toned Mandarin pigeon so commonly spoken in the deep dark. My mistake, Samira muttered in the same language. You have come to pray. In search of God? No, no. She was moved to an uncharacteristic fit of openness. Her time as Mrs. Glasshouse had left her with an opaque veneer she'd not since bothered to shed. I've found God, and now I've come to pray. His expression was somewhere on the bridge between predatory and delighted. You don't understand, Samira told him. She spoke to me, out of the deep dark. Another crazy, his face said. But then, he hadn't felt the buzzing in his bones. It doesn't matter what happened next. All that matters was that she told the imam, Revelation is like that. Put a drop of ink in a bowl of water. In a moment, all the water takes on that color. The ink is gone, but the water is irreversibly changed. That was the beginning of the end. Or, for a little while, the end of the beginning. Marlis found it funny, at any rate. Another thing she used to tell me was that we are all time travelers, moving forward at a speed of one second per second. The secret to time travel was that everyone already does it. The equations balance themselves. Time has to be more than an experiential matrix. Otherwise, entropy makes no sense. But there's nothing inherently inescapable about the rate at which it passes. If human thoughts moved with the pace of bristlecone pines, we would never have invented the water wheel, because rivers flash like steam in that frame of reference. Likewise, if we were mayflies, flowing water would be glacial. So much for the experiential aspect of time. As for the actual pace, well, life goes by at the speed of time. I don't think Marlis was looking for a way to adjust that. It was just one of those things she said. But her words have always stayed with me. In 1988, the Soviet Union spent a considerable and extremely secret sum of money on a boson rifle. Only the Nazis rivaled the Soviets for crackpot schemes and politically filtered science. America, under the Republicans, was in its way crazier, but all they truly wanted was to go back to the 50s, when middle-aged white men were safely in charge. The Soviets really did believe in the future. Some friable, concrete-lined version of it, where the eternally withering state continued to lead the workers toward a paradise of empty shelves and dusty bread. Their boson rifle was pointed at the United States, of course, figuratively speaking. The actual device was buried in a tunnel in Siberia. More accurately, it was a tunnel in Siberia, a very special kind of linear accelerator running through kilometer after kilometer of carefully maintained hard vacuum hundreds of meters beneath the blighted taiga. A casual misreading of quantum mechanics combined with Politburo desperation for a way out of the stifling mediocrity that had overcome solid Marxist-Leninist thought had led to it. An insane amount of rubles went down that hole, along with a large quantity of hard currency, not to mention the lives of hundreds of laborers and the careers of dozens of physicists. In the end, 
they calibrated it to secretly attack the USS Fond du Lac on patrol in the Sea of Okhotsk. According to the Boson Rifle's firing plan, the submarine should have roughly tripled in mass, immediately sunk with a loss of all hands, and no culpability pointing back to Moscow. Nothing happened, of course, except a terrific hum, several dozen cases of very fast-moving cancer among the scientists and technicians who were too close to the primary accelerator grids, and the plug being pulled on the universe. Though we didn't know that last bit for almost a hundred years. Inventory of the sample bag recovered from the suit of the deceased Taikonaut Radogast Wong on his return from the first Kuiper Belt expedition, 1 KBE. See specification sheet attached for precise measurement and analysis. Three narrow bolts, approximately 7 centimeters long, with pentagonal heads, bright metallic finish, pitted surfaces. One narrow bolt, approximately 2 centimeters long, damaged end, dull metallic finish, heavily corroded. One flexible tab, approximately 11 centimeters long, plastic-like substance, pale blue under normal lighting, pitted. It is to be noted that these finds do not correspond in materials or specification to any known components of the TKS Nanjing or any of the 1KBE's equipment and supplies. It is also to be noted that the China National Space Administration never officially acknowledged these finds. Lies go by at the speed of time. The truth bumbles along far behind, still looking for its first cup of coffee, while the whole world hears some other story. All revelation is a lie. It must be. The divine is an incommunicable disease, too large and splintered to fit within the confines of a primate brain. Our minds evolved to compete for fruit and pick carrion, not to comb through the parasites that drop from the clouds of God's dreaming. But... Just as an equation asymptotically approaches the solution, so revelation can asymptotically approach the truth about the underlying nature of the universe. The lie narrows to the width of the whisker of a quantum cat, while the truth, poking slowly along behind, finally merges, Siamese twinned to its precursor. That's what we tell ourselves. Why would I deny it? There has been a neutron bomb of the soul, cleansing the solar system, and thus the universe, of the stain that was the human race. Some of us remain befuddled by the curse of our survival. No corpses surround us. We survivors don't swim amid the billion-body charnel house of our species. They are gone, living on only in the dying power systems and cold-stored files and empty pairs of boots which can be found on every station the deck of every ship, in the dusty huts and moldering marble halls on Earth and Luna and Mars. The lie that was revelation became truth, and the speed of time simply stopped for almost everyone, except the few of us too soul-deaf to hear the fading rhythm of the universe. Sometimes I am thankful that Marlis could hear the music that called her up. Sometimes I curse her name for leaving me behind. My greatest fear, the one that keeps me awake most often, is that it is we survivors who vanished. 
everyone else is there, moving forward at one second per second, but only our time has stopped, an infection that will make us see a glacier as fit driver for a water wheel, and even the dying of the sun as a flickering afternoon's inconvenience. I keep waiting for the stars to slow down, their light to pool listlessly before my eyes. And you, what are you waiting for? There are answers in the Kuiper Belt debris, on the frequencies Samira Glasshouse tapped, in the trajectory of that old Soviet weapon. All you have to do is follow them and find the crack in the world where everything went. One of these days, that's where I'll go, too. And that was our story. Jay had this to say about his story. I was thinking about the real future and what it might look like. Not the right stuff, NASA-driven heroic white guy future, but the future of the world as it is, and of course, how that future might end. You know, one of the things I love about futuristic stories is when authors take a look at the evolution of religions. Just as existing world religions aren't the same as they were a thousand years ago, or even 500 years ago, they won't be the same in the future. And despite the potential cry of blasphemer from some, I welcome views of what the world may be like in regards to religions. I remember when J. Michael Straczynski got some hate mail from the episode of Babylon 5 that featured a simple phrase of Michael Garibaldi's where he said, He's not the Pope. He doesn't even look like her. Flamio, Hotman. I I may be a little excited about The Legend of Korra coming out soon. Look, The Last Airbender was an awesome cartoon, okay? Stop judging me. Anyway, this week we're getting feedback for episode 330, Kefi M. Curley's The Ghost of a Girl Who Never Lived. This was the tale of a cloned girl who was meant to replace the family's lost daughter, and what happened to her when the memory transfer failed and she didn't feel like who she was supposed to be. She wasn't Sarah, but she wasn't allowed to be anyone else. If you haven't heard the episode yet, I hope I won't spoil anything by saying that it ends about as happily as you might expect. Ghost of a Girl went over like gangbusters. Uh, Pretty much everyone enjoyed it, which made it a little hard to pick out comments for feedback. Fortunately, there was a small side conversation about the ethics of the whole thing. Listener wasn't thrilled about the burgeoning grief clone industry, and commented, There will soon come a time when we're going to have to put provisions in our wills that we aren't brought back as AIs or clones. Later, Ka pointed out that when Sarah comes back from the dead, how freaking weird is it going to be for her to have her twin suddenly be two years older? And how weird for him was it to have somebody who looked and sounded just like his twin sister around, but to not be her and to be two years younger? Lastly, Unblinking had a lengthy and thoughtful post about the implications of the technology on display. He wrote, in part, The most interesting part to me was the fact that this practice exists in this society at all. I can totally understand the temptation to bring back a loved one. My stepmom died of cancer about a year ago, and my dad survives her. If the technology were readily available, I can see myself considering bringing her back, and I expect it would be tempting for dad on a much higher degree. Grieving is a natural and healthy part of life. But the cloning doesn't help you grieve and allow you to heal, it just makes the grief go away. It stunts your ability to mature emotionally. How will you ever learn to let go? How will you ever allow yourself to go? And that's really what's great about the forums, people. If you emotionally connected to a story, if it made you think or question or get upset or come to peace with something, come by and talk with us about it. 
the conversation is part of the story, too. That's all for this week. Come back next week when we wistfully and vainly attempt to replace our beloved comment thread for episode 331, Devour. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Share it, don't change it, don't charge for it. All other rights are reserved by our authors. We're a pro-paying market, meaning that we live on your donations to pay our authors. And whenever you donate to Escape Pod, that money goes to Escape Artists, which also supports our sister podcasts, Podcastle at podcastle.org and Pseudopod at pseudopod.org. Podcastle's fantasy, Pseudopod is horror, and we fill out the triumvirate of science fiction. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. And it is time for our occasional spelling of Daikaiju, because we get asked it frequently. D-A-I-K-A-I-J-U dot org. So that was our show for this week. Our quote comes from Mark Twain. If the world comes to an end, I want to be in Cincinnati. Everything comes there ten years later. Thanks for listening. Have fun. And be mighty. Be mighty.